0: Grace, mercy, and peace be yours, dear fellow witnesses of your Savior's life, death, and resurrection on this Sunday morning. Today, we're kind of continuing that Lenten theme of watching and looking and seeing what it looks like to put God on trial, weighing different things. Today, what we're going to look at specifically is the weight of of testimony. Maybe even more specifically, we're going to talk today about um, the the weight of of clear communication, okay? The weight of letting our light shine, not only as to who we are, most importantly, letting that light shine on who our Savior above is. I would guess you know what this is. There you go. How many, has anybody ever been to the Great Wall of China? Nope. We have some travelers here, but okay, no one's been there. Um, it's, it's a dream of mine. I'd love to go see the Great Wall of China, but um, here's maybe, as soon as I put that picture up, almost all of you knew what it was, right? Um, because the Great Wall of China is, is one of the wonders of the world. Um, What's interesting about the Great Wall of China, and this is some of, well, maybe more accurately, we should call it the Great Walls of China, um, because the system was built over thousands of years, and there were different walls and additions that were put in during different dynasties and things like that. So this was like uh, the longest building project of all time. Um, Maybe a little bit like I-25, feels like it's on (laughs) construction all the time, right? So... Um, but, but that's really, so uh, the great walls of China. But this is, um, by any measure, this is an incredible feat from humans uh, um, um, within that country. Uh, you can see some of the, 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 the walls there. Um, each different color is kind of when it was put in at, at different times. Um, but the wall, or the walls, spans largely almost 15,000 miles, okay? Okay. So that's how long this wall is. Now, I think the very first thing maybe that comes to our mind when we think of the Great Wall of China is, okay, well, um, what was it used for? So if, if someone's gonna, if a nation is gonna put this kind of effort, this kind of money into something like this, it must have purpose, right? Um, and the wall, I think maybe what comes to my mind first of all is, well, this must clearly have been, been for defense, right? Defense against those who were attacking from um, neighboring countries and things like that. Um, and and there's, some tr- there's some truth to that. But um, what's interesting about the Great Wall or Walls of China was that they were so long that, that um, logistically to, to man or to put soldiers up every single mile of that wall was remarkably difficult. Right? And so, neighboring countries would choose where they were going to attack this wall. And the wall, at best, maybe was uh, maybe it slowed them down just a little bit in certain areas and things like that. So, but I think our minds go to that and say, okay, well, this must have been defense against invading armies and things like that. Um, but what they will talk about with the Great Wall of China, um, some defense... But there was actually a far greater purpose to it and maybe a far greater um, impact on the nation of China throughout all of those years. And specifically, it comes from these signal booths. Okay? So along that wall, in that wall, um, every so often you will see booths, or signal booths, or guard towers, or beacons, whatever we want to call them. Um, But along that whole span, and actually in this photo, you can see one in the foreground, but then one, two, three, four, five, six in the background. And the entire length of this had these guard towers and signal beacons, okay? So we say that the great walls of China were for defense, but most will say the greater impact was communication. At night, these towers were strategically placed where they could see the other towers around them. And if somebody attacked the country, if if somebody was scouting the wall, if somebody was, was, um, was coming close to that, what each guard tower would have was one or two people in it, and their job was to light the fuse. Not a fuse, but a fire, right? Light a fire. And they would light one fire And the next guard towers would see it, and they would light their fire. And the guard towers after those would see it, and they would light their fire. And so on and so forth, all the way down the entire line. And so defense, a little bit. But in truth, it was an early warning system. It was communication. It was accurately and quickly communicating um, if there was a problem in that area. And so light to light to light to light the news would spread rapidly. I think maybe that's a good illustration for us today when we consider Peter and Jesus on the night of his trial. Both Peter and Jesus had opportunities to clearly communicate, to let their light shine, and to let the world around them, and in some sense, um, the public, were in on that trial know exactly what was happening. Now on that night, there's a pretty stark contrast between Peter's witness and Jesus' witness. And that's what we want to look at this morning. Where do we stand in our Christian living? Is our light dark (laughs) where no one can see? Or our lives, our words, the things we do and say, giving testimony to Jesus and the forgiveness that we have. That's what we'll consider. We're going to let Jesus and Peter kind of walk us through that today. Uh, Our points for our sermon today, um, we're going to look at Peter, we're going to look at Jesus, and then we want to close up on that. What does it actually mean for you and I in our daily living? So we'll just kind of zoom in at the end, so... Uh, you're welcome to follow along with me if you would like in your bulletin. I'll also have uh, our text on our screen behind me here. Um, but the first, what we're going to look at is Jesus' testimony on that night in that trial. Now, um, setting up the scene just a little bit because we're getting thrown into um, the historical context of Jesus' last week and last week of his life on earth. Okay? Um, at this point, Jesus has been arrested Um, he's been carted off to this trial. um, And and there's a lot of things that are going on with that. But at this point, only Jesus and Peter seem to be present. At least scripturally, that's what we are told. Um, And those witnesses that they gave were vastly different. So I'll begin by reading verse 63 and 64. But Jesus remained silent. The high priest said to him, I charge you under oath by the living God Tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. You have said so, Jesus replied. But I say to all of you, from now on you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Okay. So Jesus' testimony on that night. Now, uh, you can probably understand his silence, at least on the front end of it, right? Uh, um, Because remember the setting, this was an illegal trial, right? You don't, no country on earth runs trials in the middle of the night. You only do those if you want to predict the outcome, right? So this was a mob trial. This was, this was um, absolutely illegal. At this point. He's in front of the, the um, religious leaders of the Israelite people, so the Sanhedrin. Now, understand a little bit, I think, contextually what happens or what was happening with the Israelite people at that time. Um, those that were actually in control were the Romans. But the Romans didn't want to govern every last little petty thing that was happening within Israelite society. They actually had no interest in that. Um, all they wanted was to extract their taxes and make sure that these conquered nations didn't revolt, okay? But they didn't want to get into, like, civil trials and, and squabbles and all of these things. They, did, they cared very little for any of that. So in charge were the Romans. But the Romans subcontracted, in a sense, uh, certain authority to the religious leaders within Israel. In this case, it was the Sanhedrin, the high priest, and, and uh, teachers of the law. So, especially within the realm of what we would call, or they would call, uh, religious matters, they were the authority. They were in charge. And you get a taste of that. That's exactly what's happening here this morning, or this evening, rather. So, um, that's who Jesus is on trial with. So, when at least on the outset, he remains silent, I think we get it. What are you going to say? (laughs) Right? Right? You're there, middle of the night, clearly illegal, clearly hiding stuff, right? And so at least at the beginning, Jesus doesn't speak at all. Sanhedrin, the leaders, weren't content with that. And so they bring witnesses, and a bunch of them fall through. And you think about, like, couldn't you, like, better coach your liars, right? At least get their story straight. But, like, they actually fall through. And then finally, uh, the false witnesses get their story straight and they needed at least two of them because they at least wanted the pretense of a legal trial, right? And then they accuse him. And what's amazing is then Jesus does respond, right? The high priest says, uh, I charge you under oath by the living God, tell us if you are the Messiah, the Son of God. That word Messiah is, is, is steeped in meaning and in history. The Mashiach. The Messiah, who had been promised to the Israelite people, starting in the Garden of Eden, um, replicated and, and reminded in, in the Passover meal that they had eaten for thousands of years. The rescue from Egypt. They ask him, "Are you claiming to be the Savior?" Jesus' response: "You have said so. In essence, I am. Right, I am." And in fact, he doesn't actually just leave it at that. He then steps it up a notch. He says, not only am I the Messiah, but I also have all power. And you will see at one point, right, my power as I I reside with God the Father in eternity. Their reaction? Blasphemy, right? Blasphemy, the charge of blasphemy, um, and, and actually the crowd says, we want to put you to death for that. Right? The high priest tears his clothes. Jesus was claiming to be God and the Messiah. Here's the amazing thing. That's exactly what he was. They asked him directly, and he answered them. Right? He answered them directly, I am. Jesus' testimony left no doubt and no wiggle room. And to be honest, for you and I here this morning, it doesn't leave any doubt or wiggle room either. Jesus isn't just um, um, a handy set of comments and, and uh, um, um, ideas and thoughts. Jesus isn't just uh, kind of a holy man that if we follow his example, um, life will go a little bit better and people will like us. Jesus isn't, isn't, isn't just any of those earthly things. Jesus is the Messiah, and he is true God, and he died on that cross for you and I. So Jesus answers directly to those that had him on trial. But I I hope this doesn't escape us. He's saying it directly to you as well, right? Um, Jesus isn't a self-help book, right? Jesus is the only thing that helps us. He did that through his death on the cross. And he is nothing short of God above. So That's Jesus' testimony on that night in the darkness at that that, um, fake trial. Are you the Messiah? I am. Now, we contrast that with Peter a little bit. Uh, This, if you can see, I know it's dark. This is not the greatest medium for this. Um, This is a painting by the Dutch artist Rembrandt, you know Rembrandt, uh, 15, 1600s. This is entitled, The Denial of Peter. Now I know there's, art is not the best thing to show on TV screens, I get that, right? Um, And so there's a lot that we kind of can't see going on here. Uh, But the central kind of point of this all is, and this is what they say is kind of the fulcrum of this piece of art from Rembrandt um, is, Uh, the the servant girl right there in her hand asking Peter and in a sense pointing at Peter and saying, you're one of his, aren't you? You're with him, aren't you? The entire scene kind of wraps around that, right? Let's take a look at Peter then. I pulled out for us three of the phrases from Peter's section. When he's in that courtyard when the fingers are pointed at him, when unbelievers, those who don't know who Jesus is, say to him, are you with Jesus of Nazareth? Are you his disciple? Are you one of his? As those fingers are pointed at Peter, not once, not twice, but three times, this is his answer. I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know the man. And then he began to call down curses and swear to them, I don't know the man. And immediately a rooster crowed. Peter had three chances to give testimony. Peter had three chances to, to clearly communicate not only who he was, but what he believed in, and even on a more practical level, who he was following. Jesus, These things were happening very close to one another. And the juxtaposition is, is maybe stark and striking to us because inside, Jesus is getting, giving the most clear testimony of who he was, why he was there, and what it would mean for them and for you and I. And in the courtyard, Peter repeatedly was, was obscuring that truth. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Clear communication and testimony. I think we can empathize a little bit with Peter, and maybe we come his direction just a little bit. Was that was that an easy setting? It just wasn't. Now remember, it wasn't for Jesus either. But no, it wasn't easy. Was that a high-pressure setting that Peter was in? Absolutely, right? Guards around, servant girls, um, asking what seemed like innocent questions, although in Peter's mind, he maybe was taking the next steps. If my rabbi, if my savior is in the other room and he's about to be put to death and high priests are tearing their robes for his blasphemy, what will they do to me out here in the courtyard if I say exactly who I am, what I believe and who I'm following? So, our hearts maybe go out to Peter a little bit because there was absolutely pressure there. And at least in an earthly sense, there was absolutely um, um, things on the line and things that he could lose. And I think that's where we empathize with him because the truth is that's true for you as well, isn't it? For all of us. Right? And I, I'll maybe go this far it's not necessarily here, right? The truth is, it's out there, isn't it? It's, it's, it's the questions and the conversations that you have at Christmas and Easter or Thanksgiving or birthday parties with your family members. It's questions or comments that are asked of you in your workplaces, with coworkers, some maybe that you've worked with for years and years and years. It's questions um, asked of you um, if you're a student, by other students, maybe even asked by professors. See, I think we can empathize. With Peter, And I don't know that we would label any of those things. I don't think when you're with your family, if you're a student, or when you're in your workplace, or even just with your neighbors um, in your community, I don't know that we would label any of those settings um, as trials like, like, like this, right? Like that Peter was in. And yet, on some level, they kind of are, aren't they? Now, I would guess you're not worried necessarily that your life is going to be taken from you. But there's other things on the line. Um, relationships with people that you care about, right? Um, coworkers that you actually have to work with. An employer that you actually have to perform for because you are tasked with doing certain things and if you don't do those certain things, they'll ask you to find another employer, right? And so um, maybe it doesn't have the very same pressure that Peter had on that night. But I would guess that every single one of you feel that pressure, know that pressure in your own personal lives. And here's where we're also like Peter. I think in each and every one of our personal lives, in the conversations we have, in the relationships that you hold near and dear, there are going to be moments when those that you care about, those that you work with, or those in our community will ask, aren't you with him? Aren't you one of them? Right? Maybe it's not necessarily the servant girl's fingers pointing right at you. But I think we've all felt that. And I think along with Peter, at least speaking for myself, far too often I answer very similarly to Peter. Maybe not verbally, but maybe quite often by the things I choose not to say. I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him, right? Jesus' testimony of who he was was clear, was accurate, was concise, and was life-giving and saving. Peter's testimony was something other than that, right? And I think there are times in our lives when that's where we land as well, right? Where we are not shining a bright light On Christ and the forgiveness and the hope that we have, but we are doing everything we can to snuff it out and to hide it. If you've been there, I've been there, you're not alone. And I will, I will, I will, I am not so naive to think that the situations that we live in, the people that you live with, that those settings aren't hard. And in truth, there is something to lose, at least in an earthly sense, right? When we confess our Lord and Savior, when we clearly communicate in words spoken and words, le- and words not spoken, in our actions and in, in the priorities that we set in our life, when we clearly communicate Christ, there will be times when there is loss, maybe loss of relationships, maybe strained relationships. Here's my encouragement. And this is why Jesus was in that trial. There will be times when you communicate that message, and it's not loss that you experience, but it's found. It's family and friends and neighbors and coworkers who only wanted to know why you have hope and why you live your life in a certain way. And if we aren't willing to clearly communicate that to the people around us, who will? And so, is there potential for loss? Absolutely. But brothers and sisters, I would argue the potential for gain and for life is far greater. Peter would realize that at some point. On that night, it kind of fell flat. But here's the real amazing thing, not only for Peter, Uh, But for you and I, um, when we fall flat, we have a God that picks us upright. right. (laughs) Right? When we dig our own holes, we have a God that not only jumps into the hole with us, but lifts us out of it. Um, That's what he was doing on that night at that trial as he sacrificially went to that cross in order to give his life there for you and I, where God died and gave his life on the cross for you and I. So you would know that your sins are forgiven. That the moments and the opportunities where we have fallen flat on our face, where we could have clearly shared and told the people we love about Jesus, the times when we simply didn't do it, you're forgiven. That's why he went to the cross. We lay those at the foot of our Lord and Savior. Peter did so as he literally laid his tears and wept bitterly. But we have a God that picked Peter up And picks us up. And he does that um, by his forgiveness that we have at the cross. Uh, Chronologically speaking, that's exactly what Jesus did for Peter, okay? We find that in Luke, actually, not our selection here today. Uh, The Lord turned and looked straight at Peter. You ever wonder what was the expression on Jesus' face on that night? Our Matthew selection doesn't actually share that little tidbit. It's interesting that Luke does. So clearly Jesus was close enough to Peter and his his I don't know you three times (laughs) that Peter got eyesight with him. This is where this screen kind of falls a little bit short. Rembrandt painted this picture of Peter's denial. Go home and look it up this afternoon. Rembrandt's painting of Peter's denial. In the upper right corner, you'll see a, 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 a kind of faint picture, a faint image. And it's simply Jesus looking at Peter. Right? I think there are times we wonder what was on his face. Right? Was it disappointment? Was it sadness? I like to think that it was actually Compassion. Because Jesus had said, Peter, this is what you're going to do. Peter said, no way. Then Peter did it. Jesus looks at him, looks him in the eyes. And I think that look is compassion. It's exactly why Jesus was going through a fake trial and would lay out his life and let his blood be shed on the cross. It was for moments just like that with Peter. And it's for moments just like the ones we have in our lives as well. It's a look of compassion. It's a look of love, it's a look of self-sacrifice, and it's a look of a Messiah who is willing to give his life on the cross in our place, okay. I think that's Jesus' look at us here this morning. What does he go on to do for Peter? John, actually, 21, verse 17 tells us. Uh, he comes to Peter after his resurrection, right? And he kind of, grill, not grills him, but asks him a few pointed questions. Three times, right? Is the number three, the three times that he disowned Jesus significant? Maybe, right? But Jesus asked him three different times. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because he asked him the third time. Peter had already said it twice. Peter said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. See, Jesus didn't leave Peter in the mud or in the dirt, but he picks him up and he says, yeah, actually, I do know you love me. Um, And you love me enough that you're going to proclaim the forgiveness that not only you have, but that the world needs to hear. So Jesus says to Peter, go feed my sheep, (laughs) right? Share the good news of who I am and what I've done and what it means for others in their life, right? Now, why does that matter for us here today? because that's the world that Peter went into and that's the world that you go into and that we exist in, okay? I would argue largely in a world um, where the light of Christ and the forgiveness that we have in him is at best obscured if not completely in the dark, okay? That's the world you all as missionaries get to let your light shine in, okay? Uh, People that are smarter than me, sociologists, uh, those that study spirituality in modern America, um, will often break us down as Americans into six different groups. And I can't take credit for this. This came from one of my peers. Um, but these are kind of the categories. We go into our world to let our light shine. This is the categories uh, generally we as Americans fit into. Okay? Um, the shopper, so someone that maybe believes in Jesus, um, but is just looking for a home church, right? The disengaged, maybe that's someone that if you put it, put it to them, they would say they're Christian, but when's the last time they were ever in a congregation or in a church? Um, maybe it was a funeral or a wedding, that was about it. Maybe pop in on Christmas because the kids get a prize, right? So we would say that's the disengaged. Um, there's many that are turned off, and some uh, rightfully so. Um, um, sin that happens within Christian congregations and organizations, we are, um, we are not immune to those things. And so there are some that are just turned off, that they've been hurt They've been wounded, and they no longer want any part of Christianity. One group, the happy humanist, right? Atheist, agnostic, whatever you want to call them, live for today, I'm going to make the best of my life right here, right now. Because when it ends, when my candle gets snuffed out, that's it. Nothing before, nothing beyond. Okay, happy humanist. Um, bottom left there, the assailant. This would be someone that is that is that a- actively persecutes. Christianity that has, has a significant axe to grind with Christianity and with Christians, right? Um, and the last one there we would just call the unexposed. They just have no idea. No one's ever actually shared Jesus with them or invited them to church, right? Okay, so in 1980, these were kind of the percentages of those categories. About 33% of our world we would label as shoppers. About 38% would have been labeled as disengaged. 13% turned off, happy humanist, 9 assailant, 6 unexposed, 1%. So if you take a look at that, um, if, you were, if you were in church in the 1980s, almost a third of the society in which we live in was either actively looking for a church or just hadn't been in church in a while, okay? Almost a third of society, but our world, your world has vastly changed. By 2000, this is what it looks like. And by 2020, this, these are the percentages. Those that are actively shopping for a church, single digits. The people are not looking for church. They're not searching out church. Some of you are saying, well, I did. Well, maybe. But the most of our world is not, right? Disengaged is down to 13%. 20% for turned off and then our happy humanists, the nuns that might be spiritual but not religious, right? Assailants about 11% and unexposed 18%. So now look how that is flipped. So we talk about what is the importance of you letting your light shine and clearly communicating who Jesus is in your world. The right-hand column is why. Um, Because people are not clamoring to get into churches. They aren't, right? They're not knocking down our walls, your neighbors, your loved ones, your coworkers um, are, are not searching for that. But here's what they are looking at. If they're not coming inside of these walls, they're looking at you. They're looking at us. Saying, I've never been within the walls of a Christian church. But I think I know a Christian. <laughs> and so I'm going to watch what he or she does. And I may ask them a question right? Herein lies where Peter was on that evening, in the dark, around the fire. I think that's us as well, right? That also is the opportunity that we have to let our light shine bright. And that's maybe an opportunity. Light shines brightest when things are darkest. And we can maybe say on some level culturally, that's where we're at as a nation, right? But it's also an opportunity for you To let your light shine of the forgiveness that you have. Did Peter, Peter fell flat on his face. Peter was restored and forgiven by Jesus. Did Peter learn that lesson as he went forward in his life and in his Christian living? I think we can say absolutely yes. But we'll take Peter's own words for it. Here's what he says in chapter 3, verse 15. This is Peter. I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. Three times. Here's how he goes on. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have, but do this with gentleness and respect. I, I've, I've, every time I read 1 Peter 3.15, I wish we could always mirror it with his three, I don't knows, I don't knows, I don't knows. Because, because do you think that he learned? I would argue he did. Be ready in every situation. You almost feel like he could have inserted and sometimes when you're gathered around a fire, you should be ready, right? To give a reason for the hope that you have. Um, That's the opportunity we have as well, brothers and sisters, to give a, a clear testimony of not only who Jesus is, but what he's done in our hearts and in our lives and might in the lives of those around us. So I'm going to leave you with one to do easy. This is an easy one this morning. Um, we call this low-hanging fruit, okay? One thing, because you might be thinking, um, do, will I have the right words? Will I have the right opportunity? Will it come to me? Those kind of things. Um, each and every one of us live and, and work with and have neighbors and family members. Um, when, when they ask you, what are you going to do this weekend? When they ask, what does your Sunday look like when it is going to be 65 degrees outside? When they ask you, what did you do this last weekend? Here's your simple answer. I went to church. I went to church. No HR firm is going to get on you for that. You will not get fired for saying the activity that you did on a weekend. But here's what it does say. It says, I participated in something that most of our world and community does not. I prioritize something with other people because it means something to me and it may very well give you opportunity to answer questions. For someone to say, "Um, do you know him? I heard someone say, pastor say, I pray that Our Christian accent gives us away as we gather around the fireplace. I hope it does. I hope it leads to opportunities where your family members, your friends ask you. And I pray that God gives you the strength, the wisdom um, um, to clearly proclaim what you know in your heart, what you have and hold dear in your heart. The hope you have of forgiveness and eternal life in Jesus. That's my prayer for you this coming week. Lord will walk with us just as he did with Peter. Amen.